Welcome to Murder in the Black with Steph and M.B. Welcome back to Murder in the Black. I'm your host, Steph. And I'm MD. And we had a hiccup last week. (laughs) Such a big hiccup. And you know, honestly, it's not a lack of us recording. We recorded. Right. And this happened to me when I recorded an individual episode one time. And it was so late at night, guys. Like, it was literally like 1, 2 in the morning. I just finished working. I knew I needed to get this episode out. And I recorded a 40-minute episode. 40. Only to find out that that mug did not record. Girl. And that's what happened to us last time. It recorded my voice. But it didn't record Steph's voice. Yeah. And so... The quality was just bad and, you know... It was no salvaging it. Yeah. Our producer, which is our dad, was like, don't release that. Because <laughs> I, I mean, was, like, I was right there like, let's just, let's just put it out. Like, but, you know, real tears were shed. Right. You know, but here we are. So... We came back. We came back. And sorry it wasn't last week because you went to Chicago. Yeah, I went to Chicago. So if you, we have a couple of people who follow me uh, that are from from the show on my personal Instagram. And come on, you can come follow me. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I went to Chicago. So, like, I literally, we recorded. Next day I went to Chicago. There was no re-recording without killing ourselves or killing myself. Right. So... Unfortunately, it is what it is, but we're back. And we're back with part two of the Michael Jordan's father story. Right. So, James Jordan. What I realized, MD, in the haste of recording our first part, we did not name. No, we didn't. And so I kind of gave it a name that our brother said. Which was the figure behind the giant or something oh, like that. Yeah. And I can't, he, he always comes up. He with always, you know, and he was supposed to be on this episode. With and him. was? It's okay. We're not going, we're not going to go there with him. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to charge it to your head. <laughs> not your heart. Okay. So let's, let's, let's get into part two. MD, take us away. So, if it's the morning, grab your coffee. If it's the afternoon or the evening, grab your wine. But either way, let's get into it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Let's get into it. So, MD, kind of like recap very quickly where we left off with Daniel and the whole debacle. 
Right. So at at this point, remember, Daniel was being interviewed by the police. So was Larry. They were both, you know, being interrogated, for lack of a better word, because it's up in the air if it was interrogation at the time since they weren't under arrest. But either way, they were being interviewed, interrogated by the police. The police went to Daniel's house to search for, you know, anything that could be linked to James Jordan. And what did they find? All the things. All of the things. The particularly the, a footage, a video footage of him sporting a, you know, James Jordan's Rolex, James Jordan's ring that, you know, Michael Jordan had given him after winning a championship. And so, and he's rapping and he's acting all cool and, uh, you know, but they felt like that was the the thing that they needed to completely tie Daniel to this murder. And so that's where Larry, shortly after that, Larry confessed or he decided to go with what the police's story was. You know, they were trying to get one of them to turn on the other. Like, hey, you know, whoever's going to turn first gets this plea deal. So you might as well do it. Who's going to do it? <laughs> and so, you know, that's Larry decided to, you know, turn state evidence. And, you know, he corroborated that, yeah, it was, it was, uh, in fact, Daniel that pulled the trigger. We did rob this, you know, James Jordan and took his car. And so at this point, it's time to go to trial. So that's where we left you guys. We left you with Daniel and Larry going to trial and Larry turning state evidence. Right. So we have to discuss, you know, what what took place in Robinson County. We have to talk about that because I think it has a lot to do with how you may form your opinion um, at the end of this episode. So, Robeson County was a, for the most part, a very poor community. There was a lot of political unrest. Um, racial injustice was taking place. Police corruption. All, everything you can think of was happening in small Robeson County. Okay? And there was a high population of Native Americans, especially back in the early 90s. I have no idea. So, North Carolina... Let us know what's up. Y'all got a high population of Native Americans still? That's interesting. I'm interested. But <laughs> nevertheless, back in the early 90s, um, there was a high population of Native Americans. And in the black community and the white community, it was just they were all against each other. That's the best way to say it. Like the Native Americans, they had beef with the black community so on and so forth with the white community as well. So actually, in the early 90s, there was a killing that took place that really kind of caused a lot of the political unrest that was happening. And a Native American was killed. He was unarmed. He wasn't arrested. I mean, you know, he wasn't read his rights. It was alleged that he was a drug dealer, and actually, 
Hubert Stone, who was the sheriff, his son, um, Deputy Stone, actually committed this murder. And I'm just going to say it's a murder. <laughs> okay. I mean, he was unarmed. <laughs> he wasn't arrested. I'm just going to go out on a limb. I don't know. I, MD may have a problem with that. But I mean, it just wasn't classified as a murder. As long as we... You know, state that you believe it was a murder. That's fine. It's your okay. Opinion. Okay. So, uh, this guy's name was Jimmy Earl Cummings, and immediately when Deputy Stone shot him to death, and it was all publicized, they put Deputy Kevin Stone on administrative leave because that's what they do when they investigate to see what actually took place. And he was quickly reinstated. Now, as I said before, none of the precautions took place. And so the Native American community was just like, what? This is crazy. Mm -hmm. Like, how dare you guys do this? And there was none of the precautions that were supposed to take place took place. This is this is crazy. Right. So not a there was a lot of political unrest, but nothing major took place from that just outside of the, you know, obvious frustration. So this man by the name of Terry Evans, a black man in the community, said that he was approached by Edward Starbucksky. And that is a very interesting name. Edward was Native American, and because of everything that happened with Deputy Kevin Stone killing this unarmed Native American, Edward Starbucksky goes to Terry Evans and he says, Hey, listen, I want you to kill Kevin Stone for me. I'll give you 20K. And so Terry Evans says, okay, but he quickly contacts the sheriff, who is Hubert Stone, right, which is Kevin Stone's dad. I hope you guys are keeping up. So they contact him, or Terry contacts Hubert Stone, and he says, you know, hey, this is what happened. They're threatening, you know, somebody wants me to do a kill for hire against your son, I just want to let you know what's going on. Like, I don't know what I should be doing next. I'm not going to do it. Right. And I'm not going to do it. So Hubert Stone says to him, he says, well, hey, I'm going to come by your house tomorrow. I'm going to put a bug in your phone so we can record this conversation that you're having with Edward Starbucksky. And I'm also going to notify the FBI because I guess that is kind of like the procedure, right? So, I would say a day or so later, Starbucksky was was killed by the local law enforcement there in Robeson County. So, the everything starts to come out, right? All this conversation with Terry Evans, so on and so forth. And the FBI actually had no clue about the situation. So Hubert Stone, who said that he was going to come by and bug his phone and then notify FBI and kind of get everything on record so they could arrest Edward Starbucksky, but that didn't happen, okay? So there's some noticeable corruption within right. the department. Obvious corruption. Yeah. <laughs> it's 
very, right. very strange. Right. So the community now where the community was frustrated about this unarmed Native American, they are pissed and frustrated that law enforcement continues to ignore the law. Like what? Law enforcement ignoring the law. So by this time, um, some Native Americans go and take the local newspaper hostage. They go in with a sawed-off shotgun, and they chain the door, and immediately they hold 17 hostages, or they keep 17 hostages because they release the minorities because they're like, yeah, I ain't got nothing to do with this. So black folks, (laughs) brown folks, Native Americans, y'all can go home. They got nothing to do with y'all. Um, and immediately they want to talk to the governor because their main reason on why they do this is because they are trying to get the governor, somebody, to start an investigation on this police department. There are obvious things that are happening within this community and it's going ignored. They can't trust law enforcement to do their job. Not only did that happen, I I think it's worth me mentioning that like weeks before they took hostage over the local newspaper, a black man was killed in the county jail there and he begged for medical attention. He was ignored and ended up dying. So that, that also like led to... Um, them taking the local newspaper hostage. Hmm. So the agreement was, you know, officially made with the governor's office to investigate the local PD. And the people who were involved were Eddie Hatcher and Tim Jacobs. And of course, they, they went to jail for kidnapping, even though no one was hurt. That still didn't contribute to them having to go to jail. Right. right. Because kidnapping is not about whether or not you hurt someone. Mm-hmm. Like that's not the letter of the law. And so, you know, the fact that they did hold someone hostage meets the definition. And so regardless that they had no ill intent, they never in you know, intended intention you know, the, your mental mindset is not a part of the 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 law like you know in terms of like whether or not you broke the law or not it's not they don't look at your mind okay. to see is there malicious intent here mm-hmm. it's kind of like statutory rape right there is no well I didn't know that she was very good example you know so it it's that that's not it is it's irrelevant Mm-hmm. Because it's not a part of the law. Your mindset, and there are laws where malice and your your mindset does matter. Mm-hmm. But in some of these types of laws where it's just straightforward, hey. I mean, an- another law that we can all relate to is running, or, or running a stop sign or speeding. Yes, speeding for sure. Speeding I mean, is sir, absolutely. I didn't, I didn't know that it was seventy. <laughs> I thought it was eighty-five. <laughs> and they're like, "We don't care that you didn't know. You should have known." Mm. And that's enough. Yeah, 
And I think that's fair. Yeah, I mean, it's fair. It's, you know, and you can also present the argument that it's not fair. Mm -hmm. Like, wow, these people were just trying to. But when you do that, you open up such a gray area and it's hard to enforce the law when you have the gray. the, The law is gray. But when you make something more white, that is really very difficult to enforce that kind of a law because then it's like somebody always can come and say, well, you know, my mindset. And it's like, were they being true? Was it really not your mindset? We don't really know. Yeah. So, okay, so you have all this corruption here in Robeson County, um, and the people come together and they realize that the way, and you could argue this point, but an effective way to create change is to vote people in who agree with the same things that you do, right? So that is what they did. They actually um, got a man on the ballot by the name of Julian Pierce. He was going for uh, a judge position. I don't, you know, I don't know what, in what court. Right. There's Mm -hmm. certain different courts, Um, but they got him on the ballot. Julian Pierce, he was the first Indian to run for this position and everything just was seemingly coming together. After all that took place, you know, you started to see the, the forest through the trees, as they say, as they say. But unfortunately, on March 26th, He was shot and killed, and this was in 1988, okay? Now, it's alleged that the person who shot him, which I'm, I'm, John Goings is his name. It's alleged that John Goings did this, but there was really no true connection that they could pinpoint between John Goings and Julian Pierce's, um, assassination okay and before they could even investigate John Goings once they figured out that he was the alleged shooter just five weeks before the election when he's about to be arrested John Goings that is he is he shoots himself in his father's home from a self-inflicted gunshot wound so this is all of this suspicion right And Julian Pierce's family, um, they said that their father was digging into a lot of the corruption that was taking place inside of Robeson County. They were trying to figure out, you know, he was going to try to figure out what was going on. And he kind of uncovered that there was a drug, a drug um, trafficking situation in that town as well so he was like right on the cusp of like really investigating Robeson County doing what the people wanted and they unfortunately murdered him um so you know that's just I think we have to cover the local PD in Robeson County to get you guys to understand that there was just tons of corruption that existed there. And when you have corruption that creates suspicion and, you know, did y'all really do your job? I don't know. Right. I mean, you know, there's always going to be some cloud of suspicion when it comes to PD because, especially in the climate that we live in now, where Mm. you see 
you know, that that there are some corrupt police officers and like you're always going to have bad seeds, right? Like there's always in any profession. Mm-hmm. But I do think that we hold that profession particularly at such a high standard and should, right? Like you Absolutely. are very literally tasked with having to enforce the law as we have deemed as a culture and a society that it should be. And so if you cannot like live up to the law or abide by the law, then how do we expect for you to enforce it or to truly go after the people that are not enforcing it, you know, or that are not, that are not following the law. So it always adds an additional cloud of suspicion. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. And so five years later, you know, then the Daniel Green and James Jordan situation happens. Now, we want to encourage you guys to go and watch Moment of Truth, where we got the bulk of our research about this case, because we're not going to dive into Daniel Green's um, background. But we do want you to know, I mean, not too deep. We do want you to know that he grew up in Robeson County around all of this political unrest and injustice that was taking place. We want you guys to go look at Moment of Truth. It is on Freeverse. And if you have Prime Video, you just type in Moment of Truth and it'll pop up for you. So, MD, tell us a little bit about, you know, the like. The trial. How did that go? How did this influence all of what we're talking about? Right. So, you know, you have... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. have that climate that's setting the backdrop of this trial. And so you're going into this trial already wondering. There's a cloud of suspicion. Here you have a Native American and you have an African American on trial for the murder of the the greatest of all time, even back then, <laughs> you know, the greatest of all time's father. Like, here's Michael Jordan. So, you know, you feel this. I'm sure law enforcement, even without the corruption in the background, felt this pressure that, you know, who wants... Michael Jordan's father to die in their county. <laughs> no, nobody. And it, it re- kind of reminds me of not reminds me because I was obviously not alive, but mm-hmm. just you know, we I grew up in Texas, I grew up in Dallas, and you know, obviously the history that we learn here is going to be related to Texas, right? P- predominantly. And I just remember being in my history classes and learning about JFK's assassination and how much of an embarrassment it was for Dallas to know that, hey, we actually were the city and state where 
JFK was assassinated. Right. And that pressure of we've got to hurry up and solve this. Solve this. Our reputation is, is that state. Right, our reputation is online. Nobody's going to want to come back to Dallas, Texas ever again. <laughs> we killed a whole president. Not we as a city, but like mm-hmm. this is where he died. Right. And I mean, you know, when you do that, when that pressure is on and you also have a backdrop of corruption, there's always going to be, well, so is, do you have the right people? I mean, still to this day, there are questions as to whether or not we actually got the right person for JFK. Right. So just kind of keep all of that in mind as we we push forward in the trial. And really what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay out what the prosecution's case was, lay out what the defense's case was, and then just give you some main problems that went on with this case as I see it as an attorney. Okay. So the prosecution's case really rolled completely on Larry's testimony. I mean, that was their case. They didn't really have a lot of additional evidence. Their evidence was Larry. Larry saying, I was there. Larry saying, I witnessed it. And I'm here to tell you the truth about it. Right. So Larry's, Larry's, I think it's very interesting to identify what Larry's story was when he was first arrested, what Larry's story was when he signed his confession, and what Larry's story was when he was on, you know, when he was, you know, in the witness seat testifying at trial. Because all three of those stories are different. (laughs) Whoa. So the first story, obviously, when he was arrested was, I had nothing to do with that. We, we, yes, we did ride around in this car. Some random person gave it to us. And they identified the person, but it's not important here. You know, gave us this car. We drove around town. You know, but that's it. That's it. That's all. We. I never saw it, the the owner of this car. I didn't kill nobody. Like we were not anywhere near that. All we did was drive the car. That morphed into the confession that he signed with the police, which then became I witnessed Daniel shooting this guy. We we. We robbed James Jordan's vehicle. It was pulled over on the side of the road, Mm -hmm. which is what the prosecution story was. Remember, they're saying James Jordan pulled over, even though he was 500 feet from this hotel, but he pulled over to take a nap, and Larry corroborated that they approached this vehicle, tried to rob the vehicle. Daniel pulled a gun out. Um, And as Daniel was pulling the gun out, Larry conveniently was running away saying, let's go. And he heard gunshots fired, turned around and saw that Daniel had shot and killed James Jordan. So that becomes the story. And that is what the prosecution uses to 
pursue Daniel at trial. This is their story. This is what they say happens at that point. They say that they went and dumped the body in South Carolina um, and they rode around town, you know, joyriding in this car for the Mm -hmm. next couple of weeks. Now that changed and became on trial, Larry stated that he was standing right next to Daniel as Daniel pulled the trigger. This time he wasn't moving away from the vehicle. This time he wasn't down the street and turned around and heard. Like this time he, he was, was right there, right there mm-hmm. witnessed it with his own eyes. And then the rest of the story is the same. So I think it's really interesting how Larry's story moves him completely away from the body. He starts where he wasn't even near a dead body mm-hmm. all the way to I was standing right there as, you know, James got shot. So as an attorney, if I were to be on the defensive side, I would be poking holes in all of these, you know, you version of events. You have all of these different versions. And yes, while Daniel... He has two different versions. It makes more logical sense. I think most people can understand lying initially and saying, hey, I didn't have nothing to do with it. And then changing it to say, okay, I didn't have anything to do with it. But this is what happened. But I did do this. And I will get into what Daniel's story was toward the end. But I want to lay out the prosecution's case first. So, you know, at at the end of the day, the jury is is tasked with having to sift through, do we believe Larry's testimony or are we going to believe what the defense is saying happened? So the defense, now their initial, what they wanted to come to trial with, their theory. So, of course, you know, I think it's important to understand that when you're on trial for murder, it's the prosecution's case. They shoulder the burden. They have the heavy lifting of proving beyond a reasonable doubt. And we've kind of talked about this on this, you know, in, in our show before, how that is such a high burden. It's the highest burden that exists under our law is to beyond a reasonable doubt. That means that there are no doubts that exist within your mind hmm. that this person did committed this crime, okay? And so that is not the defense's burden. The defense literally doesn't have to do anything. After the prosecution presents his case, the defense has an option to literally just say, we don't have anything else to, to prove. And as a matter of fact, Judge, we ask that you give us a directed verdict because the, the, the prosecution didn't prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. I mean, that's literally the defense does not carry a burden. But obviously you want to ensure most of the time that doesn't happen and you want to ensure that your client is able to get off. And so the defense in this case you know, they are going to have to present something. And so what they come to the table with in their theory is that Daniel did commit a crime. 
but the crime that Daniel committed was not murder. Daniel did like participate in dumping the body and Daniel did participate in driving around in this car, stealing, you know, James Jordan's ring, Rolex and additional whatever items that were in the vehicle. But Daniel was not involved in the murder. And so Daniel's story is that the night that James Jordan was was killed, him and Larry went to his godmother's house and like several people came by. They were having a party mm-hmm. and, you know, not not really a party. I would a say function. like a, a, just a get together. Mm-hmm. You know how you know how you do just kind of last minute. Hey, y'all want to come over? And so, you know, Larry had asked Daniel to ride with him to, you know, I think it was New York or to go somewhere. And initially, Daniel was like, okay, yeah, but let's like go to my godmother's house for a while and we'll hang out and and then I'll go. But as he approached the time for Larry to get ready to leave, Daniel didn't want to go. And part of the reason Daniel didn't want to go was because there was a girl that was at the party that he's been, he had been trying to get at, and she was there, <laughs> and he was talking to her, and he was like, I'm not about to lose my shot. Yeah, I'm about to shoot my shot. I'm already shooting my shot. I'm going to continue to shoot my shot, and you go on to New York by yourself. And he did mention that in the documentary that he really kind of didn't have a good feeling about going anyway, so this was like a great excuse not to go. And so Larry ended up leaving, and Daniel stayed. And there are witnesses that corroborate that Larry left and that Daniel stayed. Daniel ended up falling asleep. The whole house ended up going to bed after, you know, having a good time. He went, Daniel went to bed with this girl. Like, they, like, went to bed in the same room, Mm -hmm. in the same bed, and this girl corroborates that, yes, Daniel was with me. Now, around 4.35 in the morning, Larry comes back to that house, and everybody in the house is awakened. And everybody says that they remember it because it was just like Larry was making so much noise and it was just like very odd because, you know, they were like, okay, is it time to get up? Like, it felt like, what's happening? What are you doing? Larry had a bruise on his face when he came back in the house and he was upset. He was visibly anxious and, you know, he was begging that Daniel would come with him, he needed Daniel's help. Daniel's mom actually discusses this on the documentary, how she remembers having this like gut feeling that she didn't want Daniel to go. And she even, I think she even said to Daniel, like, I don't want you to go or y'all do this in the morning. Like y'all should just wait. Like it was the morning, but like do this later today. Like and Daniel said, no, like, we got to go change. I got to go help him change this tire. I'm just going to go help him. We'll be right back. And so I just find, I found it so interesting listening to this because I'm, I'm like, had he listened to his mom, had he stayed back, if Daniel's story is in fact true, had he just listened to his mom, 
he wouldn't even be wrapped up in this. I'm just saying, listen to your mom. Listen to your mom. But he, Daniel did leave, and he, he, you know, he went with Larry, and he didn't even really know, according to him, what he was walking into. He just knew that Larry asked him to come help him. He said that when he got, they, you know, got to the destination, he gets out out of the vehicle. He sees this red Lexus, you know, parked on the side, and he sees this body on the ground. And Larry goes and puts a quilt, like a blanket, in the backseat of James Jordan's vehicle. And Daniel helps his friend. He helps his friend move this dead body from the road to the vehicle. They then drive that vehicle to South Carolina where they dump the body in a creek. Now, this does support... Why they didn't find any blood. Yes. Okay. And so we're going to get to that. Okay. And I'm going to talk about that. But this does support um, the the defense's theory that it could not have happened the way that the the prosecution has painted it to happen. And so this is what the the defense presents. This is their evidence. This is their, you know statement to the jury that this it it's not what Larry is painting out. Larry is the one that killed the killed James Jordan, not Daniel. Now, the defense also had a different theory that they tried to present at trial but it was shut down. And so the jury's the juror never heard it. And this theory is that James Jordan's body or James Jordan's death was a result of a drug deal gone bad or some kind of gambling drug relationship. And the reason they had that is because if you recall in our part one, Steph told you about how James Jordan had this cell, you know, it's not a cellular phone. It's a car phone because it wasn't a cellular <laughs> phone back then. But he had this car phone in the car. And this was particularly interesting to the, the prosecution because the prosecution was able to go look at the call history and see who he called. And that's how they knew that James Jordan is contacting people in Robeson County, and he doesn't know anybody in Robeson County. So that's why they knew that there was something odd about that. But one of the calls was placed to a guy named Hubert Deese. Mm. Now, Hubert Deese is actually the son of the sheriff. Okay. Of Robinson County. So oh, remember, Steph just told you about how corrupt this guy was. Mm-hmm. And it was known in Robinson County that Hubert Deese, his son, was, at the time, they didn't know for a fact, but it was alleged that he was, you know, involved in drug trafficking. Mm-hmm. Now, at the time, Hubert Deese had not, you know, been arrested, had not had any charges for drug trafficking. But I will make this statement that he did end up 
going to jail for drug trafficking long after this case was, you know, decided. Over and done with. Right. But just keep that in the back of your, your mind because the defense wanted to present the theory that Hubert Deese was involved with Larry because Larry, we do know, was involved in drug trafficking and there was suspicion that Larry was an informant to the police department mm. regarding drug trafficking. And you remember Julian Pierce, who's running for the position of judge, found out about drug trafficking that was happening in Robinson County. Exactly. So here's what's even more interesting is that Hubert and Larry both worked at a place called Creek Line Mobile Homes mm. and about, mm, I'd say, 100 feet from that place is the creek where James Jordan's body was found. Mm. So the defense wanted to bring this theory to the jury and they wanted to show that yes we are willing to confess to the crimes that Daniel committed Daniel is an accessory after the fact Daniel did steal James Jordan's you know belongings but Daniel didn't pull the trigger Mm. You have the wrong trigger, man. Mm -hmm. We should be looking at Hubert Deese, and we should be looking at Larry. Now, we don't know who the trigger man was because we weren't there, but it sure is presenting some reasonable doubt, and that's the theory that the defense wanted to bring, but they were never able to because the prosecution obviously objected to this, um, and the judge sided with the prosecution. So this never came to trial. The jury never heard this. So the trial goes to, you know, the case goes to the jury. The jury comes back and the jury does what, Steph? What did they do? What did they find? Did they find Daniel guilty or innocent? They found him guilty. They found him guilty. The jury found him guilty. And so that's it. Case closed, right? No. No. Because, <laughs> you know, why would we be here? <laughs> Moment of truth on Amazon Prime would not be a documentary if that was the end of the story. Right. So, you know, of course, Daniel goes to jail, but Daniel um, is still, and, and I'm using present tense, fighting the battle of trying to get this overturned because he believes that it was a wrong he was wrongly convicted. And some of the things that I, you know, in in researching this case has seen that has gone wrong with this this case and why he even has grounds to really kind of appeal is because there were some things that went Obviously wrong. The One of the first things, I actually have six total things. Oh, wow. The first thing is that there was a potential corrupt juror. Mm. So there was an alternate jury, juror 
So now you have a certain amount of jurors that sit for the trial. They always pick an alternate juror or jurors because you never know what could happen. I mean, you could literally die while sitting for jury. Um, and so they have to have somebody else that is, is able to sit in at that time. Now, your alternate juror, if they are not called upon to serve, they will not vote for the ultimate decision, but they sit in the jury, they sit in the jury box, they hear the testimony, and whether we believe it or not, I'm sure they have some level of influence. All juries, jurors have influence over other jurors. Like, it's just the truth. We can pretend like it's not, but... It is. It's the truth. Mm -hmm. And so there is this particular alternate juror that was overheard making some pretty racial and just unacceptable remarks about Daniel. Mm -hmm. She had said to somebody that he's guilty and I'm going to find him guilty. I'm voting him guilty. He deserves to die. And he's just a... That in word Mm. deserves to die so the person that overheard this conversation took it to the judge because apparently this person knew that that was unacceptable and part of the reason why that is unacceptable is because when you're called upon to serve on a jury your job is to be a non-biased party that's listening to the evidence and that can decide this case based upon the evidence presented in trial, not based upon what the media is saying, what your friends are saying, what your gut feels, what you believe to be true, based solely on the facts presented and the evidence allowed in trial. So for this case to not be over and for her to be making such inflammatory statements is really just completely and utterly yeah. unacceptable. So the judge calls the, the alternate jury, you know, to his, his chambers and, and he questions him, but ultimately the judge decided that this juror did not make those statements or that mm. I don't I don't even want to say that the juror didn't make the statements as much as he felt like it wasn't going to be a situation where we had to find a whole new jur- jury panel okay. or dismiss that juror. Okay. Now, why is that like such a big egregious offense in my book? Because again, every juror is has influence and we don't know I didn't I wasn't able to identify whether or not that juror actually ended up serving on the jury and had an ultimate vote but if in fact she did and even if she didn't she had influence 
And that's just unacceptable because at the end of the day, that means that Daniel did not get his constitutional rights to be able to be judged by a jury of his peers who are going to do what we're asking them to do, which is to make a decision based upon the facts presented at trial. So that's why I think that's the first, like, just things that went wrong. The second thing is that the all, if you recall, or I don't know if we even talked about it in great detail, but there was an autopsy done, performed on James Jordan at the time that he was, you know, his body was discovered. Right. Now, that autopsy report came back that the medical examiner did not find a bullet hole in his shirt. Right, and I'm sure they would have combed and looked through I that. mean, he made that statement at least three times in his autopsy report. Makes sense to me. He said, I do not see, I have not seen, there is not I would a not, bullet could hole. I should not. <laughs> There wasn't a bullet hole. Now, he did make some a discovery of three holes that were in his shirt that were up on the shoulder portion of his shirt. But remember, the, the bullet hole was in his chest. So if, in fact, the you know, he was shot with the sense. shirt on. Right. Why wouldn't you... What, where, how did the bullet hole not penetrate the shirt, but right. penetrated it his skin? It would have skin? to. He made documentation of this three times in this report. Mm-hmm. Was not discovered. However, at trial, his story completely changed. Not only did he say that, hey, I found that bullet hole. In the shirt. <laughs> but there was gunshot residue on the shirt as well. But the body was submerged in water for days. For weeks. Not days. Okay, weeks. 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 So make that make sense. Make it. You didn't find gunshot residue at first. And you didn't discover a bullet hole. At first, but now at trial, your story completely changes from this ex- medical examination report, and now you found a bullet hole and gunshot gunshot residue. There is some obvious fraud. Like, going what on. is happening? So, like, and I don't. I was not able to see anywhere where the defense really like rebutted this, like really like objected to this or even just, and maybe they did and it just really wasn't like documented on this documentary or even like from everything that I researched. But it's like, how did that, how did we even allow him to make this statement? Right. That is just inconsistent. Yes. So that's, that's one of the things that I found wrong. The other thing is that there was obvious treatment, like different treatment between Larry and Daniel. And this really doesn't go to the heart of the case, but I think it goes to the corruption that was existing in Robeson County at the time. So Larry and Daniel were both like arrested and put in jail for the murder of James Jordan. It took two years for this case to go to trial, mm-hmm. okay? 
And it is revealed on this documentary that every single Sunday, Larry was allowed to go have dinner with his family. I'm sorry, what? Further, he was not handcuffed ever when he was brought into trial. However, Daniel was always handcuffed when he came into trial. And he never was released to go go home. home and have dinner. Obvious bias here. Obvious bias. As I already told you, the jurors never, so the fourth thing that went wrong was the jurors never heard that defense theory. They never heard the possible connection with the Hubert, uh, Hubert Deese, you know, situation. And that leads me to the, to the fifth thing that I thought went wrong with this case, which is there was a Brady violation. So the police actually did interview Hubert Deese, according to records. They interviewed him, mm-hmm. but not only did they not provide that to the defense team, but that evidence is completely missing. Conveniently gone. So, like, he can't even use that today if he wanted to. There's no record of that actual interview. They interviewed hundreds of people. Every single one of those interviews is, like, documented and accounted for. (laughs) What? (laughs) But Hubert Deese's interview, it's missing. It's gone. And that is a Brady violation. So a Brady violation is when you do not present any, like, all, all evidence that the prosecution has has to be given to the defense. It's not like Matlock, you know, I think about Matlock because when I used to watch Matlock with my mom growing up, you know, you think that you have these big, huge aha moments in the court Mm -hmm. where the other side doesn't know what you're about to say. The other side is fully versed in all of your theories, everything that you're about to say or could say because they know your evidence just as well as you know your evidence because we have they have you have to give it to the other. Right. And particularly when it comes to a defendant who is on trial for murder or a crime, you have to give them any evidence that could per- potentially exonerate them. So to not give the defense evidence about Hubert Deese is what we call a Brady violation. So based upon the fact that this interview is conveniently missing and was never given to the defense to begin with, well, in my book, that's a clear violation. Right, right. So the final thing that I think went wrong in this case, and it is pretty egregious if you ask me, is that the prosecution mentioned in their closing argument that Daniel didn't testify in his defense. And so therefore, dot, dot, dot implying that he must be guilty because Mm -hmm. he didn't testify. And so you're probably sitting there thinking, well, yeah, because, like, 
why didn't he testify? And that is what I think goes through most people's mind. But we have a constitutional right not to testify. We don't have to. And it can't be used against you. Mm -hmm. Your silence, your willingness or unwillingness to testify cannot be used against you. And so it is well understood in in the, you know, legal field that if a defendant doesn't testify, you cannot say in closing arguments, well, the defendant didn't testify, so that means they're guilty. Those usually result in mistrials and usually should result in a mistrial. So the the judge has to make the final decision on whether or not the statement that the prosecution made biased the jury and is basically unsavable. Mm-hmm. And it's up to the defense to make that objection and and make a motion for mistrial and Daniel's defense did just that. They objected and they made a motion to, to you know, for a mistrial and the judge in this case you know, he fumbled the ball. In my opinion, you know, and I don't I hate to talk about, you know, somebody's decisions, especially when you're not sitting in their chair making, you know, living through it with them. But, you know, it really appears that he fumbled the ball here because when a defendant hires an attorney, the reason we are, you know, lay people hire attorneys Mm -hmm. 90% of the time is because they don't know the law. They don't know the law. They don't understand it. They can't interpret it and they can't argue it because a lawyer went to the law school and a lawyer understands how to interpret the law and how to, you know, how to argue the law and how to present a case. So the layperson is putting their hope, their, you know, (laughs) future in an attorney's hands. And so although it is a partnership and there cannot be decisions like Daniel has a right to testify and his attorney cannot impede on that decision to testify. And so that's a corroborative decision that is made. Hey, the, you know... The defense could say, hey, we really don't think you should testify. And Daniel could say, yeah, well, I want to testify. And ultimately, Daniel gets to testify. So, you know, it's a corroborative effort. But ultimately, the attorney is doing what they feel is best. So when Daniel's attorneys objected, it's not far-fetched that anybody would assume that Daniel would be on board with the decision that his attorneys made to call a mistrial in this case. But the judge in this case decided, you know what? I want to ask Daniel, what do you want? What do you think, Daniel? (laughs) Excuse me? You person with no degree (laughs) in law. 
you person with limited understanding of the legal system, what what are your thoughts? Do you think that we should have a mistrial? Do you think do would you want do you want this case to go on? Do you want to go ahead and send this to the jury? What do you think Daniel said, Steph? Daniel said, yeah. Daniel said, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> sure. let's, let's keep this case going. Let's, I mean, let's send this case to trial. And Daniel, in hindsight, when asked why he said that, because you're just like, well, why did you say that, Daniel? And and I think that I can understand somebody that's like looking at Daniel sideways, but I'm more looking at the judge sideways. Oh, sure. But yeah. Daniel said that he was like his his attorneys felt like they were in the sitting in a prior to this happening, his attorneys felt like they were sitting in a good space. That, right. That the prosecution really didn't do that good of a job. They really didn't have that much evidence. And they felt like they were able to rebut all the evidence that the prosecution had. So he felt like, well, hey, my my attorneys felt like we were in a good space. So, yeah, sure, send it. But I feel like, why is the judge asking him? Why is the judge asking him? Of course I'm on board because my attorney said it. Right. So and I'm that on board. should be enough. And really, even if my attorneys didn't say it, you should think that it was that egregious mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to throw it out. Mm-hmm. But that's not how it goes. And the jury came back with a guilty verdict. Sheesh. Where Daniel is currently serving life in prison without the possibility of parole. So... I mean, so what happened with Larry? So Larry, he went to, he ended up, because of his plea deal, he was, plea, plea deal, mm-hmm. he was found guilty as well, but he was found guilty of a lesser offense. And so he received, I can't remember exactly how many years, but he's mm-hmm. eligible for parole. He actually was parole back, I believe, in twenty. 18 mm-hmm. or but he messed up while he was on parole and he violated his parole and so they sent him back. He's actually eligible for parole again or eligible to get out in 2023. So this year he's eligible to get out. I also find it interesting and you should know that you know Daniel's appellate team, so the team that is trying to help him get out, they actually went and interviewed Larry while he was in prison, and Larry recanted his testimony completely and said that, yeah, Daniel did not pull the trigger. Now, he didn't say who pulled it. (laughs) Of course he But he did say that he lied, and he did say that he felt he had to lie because otherwise his family would have been in danger. And so he chose his family. And although he hates he had to throw Daniel under the bus, he chose blood. Mm-hmm. And Daniel and, I think we said this, but Daniel and Larry were best friends. They were best friends. Larry it was actually was Daniel's friends. only friend, mm-hmm. I believe. Because Daniel, if you go watch the documentary, you'll learn 
that Daniel had a stuttering problem. Mm-hmm. And so he really found it difficult to f- make friends, and he was bullied throughout his young childhood. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So Daniel actually is still fighting. He had recently fired his his appellate team, his appellate lawyer, who has done wonders for his case, has mm-hmm. been able to get it before trial. He fired her the day of the hearing and then had to argue it, argue the case himself. And so that the judge is still deciding whether or not um, that he argued that back in September 2022, and the judge has still not rendered his opinion on whether or not to give a new trial or an evidentiary hearing that would allow for a new trial further down the road. And so that's the, you know, the verdict is still out on that, but he did fire her and he argued the case himself. Yeesh. Well, um, yeah, so that's the case, and we're just going to jump into our takeaways. Yeah. Yeah. What's your takeaway, Steph? So let's talk about really quickly, I feel like MD dumped a lot of legalese that was really, really good. It was a lot in this case. It was a lot, but that's why we had to do part two, you know, because we had to go through all of that. So we're just going to, I'm just going to cover some theories surrounding James Jordan's case. Now, MD talked about one already. So just a quick refresh. Um, It's alleged that Larry was involved in drug trafficking. And that's, it's, there was some type of dealing that he had with James Jordan, right? That's how they ended up meeting up. There was something that I don't know if James Jordan was involved or was a drop-off or whatever. But the alleged information is that they got into what MD talked about. They got into a tussle. James was trying to leave. And as a result, he ended up being shot, right? So that's one theory. Another theory is that it was known, especially in the 90s, that James Jordan and Michael Jordan were involved in gambling. And it is believed that um, James Jordan had a hit on him because Michael Jordan owed money. And that was the mob sending a clear message to Michael, Michael Jordan's Jordan. family. Right. Right? So that's one. Um, And, you know, I just think that it is... So that's basically the two biggest theories that are out there, right? That it was more complicated than what even they put on for the trial. Like, it's very intricate. And if you know anything, how we covered Robeson County and the corruption there, I mean... They just 22 years, not 22 years, but I would say a little after the trial ended, 22 officers from Robeson County were charged with various crimes involving corruption. (laughs) So, you know, there was corruption there. Right. We know for sure that Hubert Stone and his family were involved in drug trafficking. Like, so I think... 
this extra information, even just talking about some of these theories will help you kind of say, you know what? There's something not all the way there. Like right. maybe we don't. I, I think it's really interesting. I read an article that was, I think, in the Chicago Times or something shortly after, you know, the trial ended. Like, so I want to say like a year or two maybe after the trial ended, this this reporter, they talked about it on Moment of Truth, and I went in and actually pulled the article to read it, mm-hmm. and he talked about how there was still so much un... Like, like so much gap, so much stuff we don't know. Like, usually when you go to trial, it really gives you, paints this bigger picture. It's like you 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 have, like, a lot of missing pieces to the puzzle. You get to trial and you're able to fill in those pieces, right, with all of the testimony and, like, all the evidence. And even if there's, like, one or two missing pieces, for the most part, you're able to really kind of even piece those missing pieces in mm-hmm. with circumstantial evidence and say, okay, that's probably the full picture. With James Jordan's case, there is so much that we don't know. There's so much that doesn't make sense. There's so much that doesn't line up that it's almost strange that you go to trial and still walk away and say, okay, that, that's very odd. Because when they polled the jury, and um, not even just when they polled the jury, the jury was asked several different questions, which is not, you know, strange. You know, they, they, they need you to find, you know, certain different things in order to be able to say, yes, you, you committed this crime. And one of the questions that they asked was, was Daniel the trigger man? And they said no. So they wow, didn't, I didn't even know that. They didn't believe Larry's story. So, I mean, you know, that even lets you know that there was doubt there. There was confusion. There was things. And, and you're saying, well, if they didn't find him the trigger man, how did they find him guilty? Well, because, you know, I don't know. Um, I don't know North Carolina's laws, mm-hmm. but if it's similar, which it sounds like it is, if it's similar to Texas laws, you don't have to be the trigger man to go to jail yeah, for, I for murder. Yeah, it's felony. Yeah, yeah. felony murder. Mm-hmm. If you were in the act of committing a crime, so they found him guilty of of felony, you know, robbery, mm-hmm. then they can find you guilty of felony murder if a person was killed you could have been in the car you could have been the drive you could have been the getaway person not even in the building where the person was killed and still go to jail for murder and so but I think it's very interesting and very telling that they didn't find that he was a trigger man and I think that that really just goes to the heart of this case that there's so much mystery and a cloud of doubt that still prevails over this case. I mean, even all the way back to how was James Jordan missing for weeks and no missing report was filed. And that's not a knock at like Michael Jordan's family. It's just a question that we don't understand. Mm-hmm. And because Michael Jordan's family doesn't talk about this with mm-hmm. the media. That raises more suspicion, more questions. And, I mean, 
MD just said, you know, he was missing for three weeks. And although Michael Jordan is instead his team started to look for him on their own, he had a whole birthday that went by. And then not only, I mean, there's suspicion around that, right? But then there's also still suspicion around he decided to take a nap on the side of the road when just 500 yards away there was a Hotel. hotel. And that particular hotel was known for gambling in the back rooms. Like, all of that. It's like, what? Yeah, it just it just leaves you with a lot of suspicion, a lot of doubt. And and honestly, I think it is to Michael Jordan's family that they haven't talked about it because Mm -hmm. I don't think that Michael Jordan's family had anything to do with Michael with James Jordan's death, but I think that they're just like, you know, we're this is a private matter. We're deal with it privately. It's their business, and they can deal with it privately. Kudos, but and, yeah, but, kudos to you. Right, but it does leave everybody else with this cloud of doubt, cloud of suspicion. Just and that's what makes this case so attractive. That's what makes this case like something that you keep coming back to, and just really leaves you with. A lot of questions. Absolutely. So with that being said, we're going to slide right into our takeaways. So right. MD, take it away. Well, honestly, I just think that when it comes to Daniel, because really my takeaways are going to relate to him. There's so much about James Jordan that we don't know and how he ended up where he is that it's very difficult to, like, talk about takeaways as it relates to him. And so I'm just going to focus on Daniel. And I just think that when you lie down with dogs, you're going to get up with fleas. Get up with fleas. Because although... You you know, you're probably wondering, well, MD, do you think Daniel's story is true? Do you believe Larry? Do you believe Daniel? What do you believe? What's your theory that you're... And I really kind of walk away still saying, I don't know. And whenever I walk away saying, I don't know, I think that the, the right answer is you don't convict because you're not meeting that high level. You're not that high burden. So I don't think that he should have been convicted. That's my answer, but I don't know if I believe his story, and the whenever and the reason why is because when you lie, it is so hard to come back from that lie. It's so difficult to like bounce back from the lies that Daniel did make. It's difficult to look at that video of him parading around with you know, James Jordan stuff, and then he wants to tell you, well, I didn't know, I didn't know it was even real. Bruh. Okay. So, you know, it's just hard, but I think that it's easier for me to believe his version of events than it is to believe Larry's. But at the end of the day, you made a conscious decision. And there's so many ways, so many times that Daniel could have turned around, turned back, went, changed. So many opportunities that he could have made 
a different choice. And he decided he didn't want to make a different choice. Mm-hmm. When he's even even wanting to go help his friend, because you know, you said, Well, my MD, like it was his friend. It's his best friend, his only friend. Of course you're gonna come help your best friend. But I'm gonna tell you something, bestie. I'm talking to you out there. You kill a person and they lay on the side of the road. I may not sell you out, but I'm gone. <laughs> like, bye. Like, what? I'm not going to jail. I'm not built for that. I'm telling the police. <laughs> so, I'm singing like a canary I'm not built like for me. that. So, you know, there's just a lot of ways that he needed to make a different choice. And it just, you know, that phrase that I use is a phrase that my parents used when we were growing up all the time, especially for me, because I had a lot of friends and they would always say, my, you got to be careful. You know, birds of a feather flock together. They flock. They flock together. And that's what people think. And so even if they're not the same bird, (laughs) Y'all flocking together, so we think you're the same bird. <laughs> so you lie down with dogs, you get up with fleas. And he's still in jail while Larry is probably about to be out. Yeah, I, I think I think MD is totally spot on um concerning that. I mean, we can't we're not we're not here to, you know, discuss James Jordan, even if we did know a little bit more about him, just despite the, you know, the origin story of how he began, you know, that's, we're not talking about him, you know, these people committed this crime and, um, you know, the loyalty aspect for me really stuck out when we were talking, when we talk about this case, because if you go back and listen to that uh, documentary, you'll see why, like, Danny was so loyal to Larry. I mean, to the point of fault, you know, to the point of you have deemed yourself, you put yourself in harm's way. And I, 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 I have my best friend, so if you listen to her, girl, I've told her all the time, the the one thing I love about her is her loyalty, and the one that thing the one thing that gets her caught up sometimes is her loyalty. And people can, and when they understand that you're loyal, and they get that, they see that on you, and you they're wear, manipulative, person. and they're manipulative, they're gonna see that. And like, well, I mean, she gonna ride. She gonna ride for me. Right. I can I can abuse that. Right. And loyalty is a gift. You know what I mean? It's it's a gift that everyone does not deserve. And my mom says all the time, loyalty is a character trait that is built over time. You know, people gotta earn that for yeah. you. Yeah. You don't just give that away. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately that got him into a lot of trouble. And MD and I didn't discuss it. This recording around. <laughs> we did on the first But on the first one. But I think it's important to follow your your gut. You know, we're Christians, so we say the Holy Spirit. But for a lot of people, it's their gut, their intuition, whatever, whatever you want to say that it is. If you sense or if somebody around you is saying, 
I don't think you should do that today. I, I just don't, I just, I don't have a good feeling. Please trust it, okay? Please. Especially when it's somebody really close to you, I yeah. know. And somebody that you know um, is very discerning, like your mother. But, you know, then, you know, you, you know, I think it really would have been wise for Daniel to have listened to his mom. In yeah. that moment. And I'm sure she wishes she had pushed it harder. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like, dang, I should have just, I mean, this man lost, he has lost his entire adult life. Like, right. I mean, even if he were to get out today, I mean, he's, he's lost so much time. His young adult life is gone. Sheesh. And at the end of the day, MD posed that she doesn't know where she lands on who necessarily did it, who you know, who didn't do it. But I, I, I know that he deserves a new hearing. He deserves a new trial. That's how I feel. All the, the six things that MD presented, it's like, okay, yeah, like some crazy things happen. And it, whether he did it or not, he needs a new trial. That's how I feel. So we want you guys, a lot of you, we did a poll last week and a lot of you guys said that you've heard of this case, but I'm going to create another poll and it's going to include a whole bunch of options because even though you might have heard of it, did you know about it this deep? Right. I mean, I didn't, so. (laughs) Right. So yeah. And then let us know if you think he did it. Yeah, we have to. Or who did it? Who did it? Yeah, what theory do you believe? Mm -hmm. So we are, um, we are trying to do the best we can this season. So give us a little grace. You know what I'm saying? We're trying to do things the right way over here. So if you love this episode, like this episode, share if you care, and um, leave us some comments. Reviews all the things. And until next time, friends, this is Murder in the Black. Bye.